Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable Trilogy. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to episode 182 of Film Tank. As always, I am Alex Diekman with another guy who is always here, and that is Nick Cheney. Hey! It was, it was a moondog try there. That was good. Thank you. Hey! Toussaint Egan, unfortunately not able to be with us on this episode. But he will be missed. I am sure he would have had thoughts yeah. on uh, what we're talking about today. I think so. Maybe he'll write in. Could be. We'll see. Or write in. Hey. Oh, that wasn't like a sex thing. No. Like okay. like write in on like, you know, that's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I took a different direction. And that's totally fine. So today... <laughs> We are uh, discussing something that I find to be very interesting, and that is M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable Trilogy, uh, a trio of films that are somewhat... United by a director. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And uh, it is billed as a trilogy only in the third film? So that's one of the things about it that makes it so interesting is that there's no real elements that make this a trilogy other than M. Night Shyamalan saying this is a trilogy. Yeah. But that is what makes it interesting to me because if you look at the other side of the coin, if this film embraced what it actually was and that it was a sequel to two separate films at the same time, uh, I think it's much more interesting when you're talking about the new film, which is Glass. Agree. It's more. I I uh, I agree in that the final product is more akin to a split <laughs> sequel. Son of uh, a bitch. Not to be confused with the movie Split, which it also is a sequel to. But I meant uh, divided attention between the two previous films rather than connecting them. Yeah. Uh, and I actually think the new film, Glass, does a pretty good job of that. Uh, of, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, we will. <laughs> so, uh, when we've done episodes in the past talking about multiple films, we've kind of went pretty straightforward. And for this one, we're going to try a different approach and just kind of talk about all of them at once for the most part. But all you really need to know, uh, if Either you haven't seen all three, or if you have seen all three and you're just kind of trying to refresh your memory on everything about them, uh, Unbreakable, the original film uh, of this trio of films, was released in 2000. It was really M. Night Shyamalan's second major film after The Sixth Sense, 
And um, for the most part, it's kind of forgotten a little bit. It even though, it's very underrated. Yeah, I was going to say, even though uh, it has a very loyal following, I would say. Uh, but the original film pretty much just starred uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, although Robin Wright was also a major part of the initial film. And the kid. Yeah, <laughs> who made his triumphant return. Yes. Not only... To this trilogy, but also to acting. Yeah. As he was out. So He was not the worst part of this movie. Of of the new one? Yeah. No, I I, I agree. I actually find him I found his acting to be kind of endearing because he wasn't like bad at acting. He's certainly not made to act in the sense that whatever. But there it could have gone a lot worse uh in taking the former child star of a random movie that they once did and asking them to reprise the role mm-hmm. in a completely different and adult context uh that many years later. Like he was more not I know this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but okay. just saying that could have been a disaster and at times I found his his enthusiasm and whatever more interesting than his father's storyline. Anyway. I would agree with what you just said. So, uh, when we move on 17 years later, uh, when Split was released in uh, late 2016, early 2017, uh, it was a film that, to the casual observer, had nothing to do with Unbreakable. And if you watch the whole film, you got to really dig deep to try to think of anything <laughs> that connects it to Unbreakable, other than, mm-hmm. obviously, the final scene. Um, I mean, there are, again, if you want to go there, there are little nuances that you'd be like, oh, on a rewatch, it makes sense. But certainly on a first viewing, if you have no knowledge that this story is in the same universe you'd as be a breakable walk. story, it would be, you would be, that would be random. It would just be random thoughts that you would say, oh, well, they also happen to be in the state of Philadelphia. Without that stinger. <laughs> The connections between Unbreakable and Split is basically like a walking BuzzFeed article. That is also <laughs> a very well-put diagnosis. <laughs> so. uh, Split surrounded uh, a wonderful performance by James McAvoy and also uh, an interesting character in Anya Taylor-Joy, who we spend the majority of the film uh, seeing a split between her modern day as she is trapped uh in this place that we know nothing about we find out that it is a basically underground of a a local zoo um but at the time it seems like it's just a warehouse almost where they are being held captive but it also goes back and forth between that and her childhood where it becomes apparent that she was a uh, child living only with her father, and then uh, her uncle started sexually molesting her. Uh, and that storyline, I think, actually plays really well in that particular film. Uh, and it's only mentioned in the new film, Glass, almost walks it back about 20 yards. <laughs> I, I would say that it less walks it back and more just egregiously capitalizes on the foundation in a very kind of uncomfortably misguided way when it comes to mental health. <laughs> it 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 has this idea it first of all 
the timeline of it is preposterous because of her living situation or yeah, of split. I, okay, I no, know, of know. of her living situation afterwards. Okay, um, because yes, it is. It is hinted that she is going to turn him over to the authorities uh, at the end of Split, and she's actually going to not just deal with this in her current living state. She's going to do something about it and not just be somebody who feels like they have to be the victim because they were the victim. Mm-hmm. However, this it's supposed to be basically right after the conclusion of uh, Split when we see Glass... And she basically goes to, um, I don't remember what personality at the time, but goes to Kevin Wendell Crumb, James McAvoy's character, and basically tells him, oh, I got my uncle put in jail. And it's just like, good. That is not how that usually goes. (laughs) I mean, I guess you're supposed to take it on faith that she she went to the authority. I'm not saying that. And and I I think, I, I don't know, it's just... That part it, didn't bother me. It, it bothered me a little bit because it seemed like it was trying to tie up that loose end and also right. gloss over at the same time. I can see that. Um, can I just say, as a casual fan of Split, uh-huh. really, really quickly, mm-hmm. when I watched Glass, I've only seen Split once when it was in its original run in the theater, mm-hmm. I did not remember a single thing about Anya Taylor-Joy's uh, uh Backstory. Yeah, I, I only remembered James McAvoy capturing little girls and terrorizing them. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff that got brought back up in uh, Glass, I was like, "Oh wow, is this like a thing in that movie?" And I completely blocked it out, which I found it was like. Mm-hmm. But somehow that did not stick with me for whatever reason. And that was only two years ago. <laughs> I was gonna say, I think that's somewhat understandable right. because it's that is the. That that really that storyline is here's the problem with M Night Shyamalan as a filmmaker and I mean we're we're just kind of going what after whatever just shows up to here the gut. yeah um, he basically created that character trait of her being an abused child and being forced into that life. Uh, to create a, something for the plot to happen, like like right. it, it, that 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 plot detail had more to do with the finale and with Kendall Wen- Kevin Wendell Crumb's character than it did with her actual character. True. So it it felt really because he couldn't make an unbreakable sequel, he had to kind of hide Kevin's importance. Even more so than he ended up doing, obviously, yeah. just as far. Because I remember when I saw Split, I knew about the Unbreakable Twist because mm. we saw it like the day it came out, and it was about the night before that it started to break in very spoiler-heavy uh, and warning uh, articles. Mm-hmm. So I knew about it. So, of course, when I was watching that movie... At the time, I was not paying attention to, like, anything about any of the victims. I was just <laughs> trying to figure out, like, who James McAvoy is and, like, does he is he connected, obviously. So, of course, once I got to the stinger and I realized that that's, like, the only real way. It's like, so I probably just, like, didn't pay attention to this movie whatsoever, but whatever. Yeah, that's okay. Teach the right. <laughs> yeah. But 
I am a huge fan of Split. It is probably my favorite film of the series. Really? Uh, yeah, I think so. I really do like Unbreakable. I know. I really do like Unbreakable, but at the same time, I find Split to be a more a a, a better full package than Unbreakable. Where I feel like Unbreakable probably has higher highs than Split does. I think from start to finish in its, you know, hour and 45 minute runtime, uh, there's really never a moment in the entirety of Split where I'm not interested. Okay. So I, I can understand that. I think for me and why I like Unbreakable the best mm-hmm. is that, and this is kind of unfortunate because it's really on me and not really on the films themselves, but... Split and Glass both share one common trait, which is that both of them are beholden to another film. Now, to varying degrees, of course, Split is much more of a whole package than something like Glass is, which is heavily dependent on like past knowledge. Not even knowledge, but just past familiarity. Like, Would you really care about anything that was happening if you hadn't seen a single scene of Split or... Like, you'd comprehend what was happening, but would like would it matter whatsoever? I just... I don't think it would. No. Um, Glass is a, is a really weird film, though. It is. It's weird because it seems like if DC was trying to make a superhero movie, this is what it would look like. Really? No. No, I mean more because like, we've seen what it no, looks I, like. No, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say that solely, solely in in the way that they present the story, not the whole superhero okay. aspect, I but the way that. that the story goes on, where it spends yeah. so much time on specific character traits and not enough time on actual story structure, because they have no story. That makes sense. So I think the more I think about this conversation that we're having, mm-hmm. uh, not to get too meta about how we talk about what we're talking about, but the more I think that there are two conversations for this episode, okay. which is the unbreakable slash split conversation and then the glass conversation. Okay. So before I get into glass, really, I guess I'll just kind of briefly summarize what I think about the the two films, which is that... I personally have talked about Unbreakable on this podcast when we did our top six superhero films, and I think I named it number two for me. Um, I think Unbreakable is fantastic. I think it very much has some M. Night Shyamalan flaws, like the hilarious uh, uh, opening and closing titles about comic books and how well they sell and how the medium is uh, a serious provocateur of literature whatever um that is just laughable not because it's not true but because if you have to say it you're either preaching to the choir that's already going to show up or you're going to get laughed off the stage by the people who don't agree with you so there's just no reason to put it there um but Unbreakable, I've always thought, is a fascinating film. Uh, I think from start to finish, Bruce Willis does a great job. And it was certainly a... Um, I, it's just the kind of, quote-unquote, studio movie we don't see nowadays. Like, even Split and Glass have an, an edge to them that like was slightly softer in a movie like Unbreakable, which is like really mostly just about a guy trying not to live up to what he may or may not have and just kind of the 
uncomfortableness because his son knows about it and you know like it it has a whole father and son relationship that for my money totally works in that movie and there's just a lot going on i i absolutely love that movie uh split i slightly enjoy like i really don't dislike it but it never really jumped off the screen for me and i think if it wasn't an unbreakable sequel quote unquote he could have did something a little more with it and it could have been a little more scary because I feel like he kind of held back on the horror aspect because the trailers kind of make it sound like it's like things that go bump in the night, like the scene where he's not being captured by the light when he's moving, little things like mm-hmm. that, that in context of the actual film looked more like just kind of almost action-y scenes, whereas um, for a guy who used to actually be known for horror, um, I just thought that the unbreakable connection was what held it back. Even though it was only minorly connected, I feel like spiritually it had an, a far greater effect on it, if not plot-wise, just tone-wise. Yes, yeah, I would agree. Um, so I enjoy both of those films, and I like what they have to do. Before I saw Glass, though, I could not tell you how these films connected. And I don't mean that literally. <laughs> uh, Bruce Willis shows up at the end of Split and they're set in the same universe. Voila. Like, I got that. Yeah. But the idea that Bruce Willis's superpower and uh, Kevin's beastly split personality disorder, like, just those two things did not mesh whatsoever. And they didn't have to because they didn't exist side by side in either one of their respective movies. Right. So I accepted it for what it was, even though it wasn't really for me. Yeah. I uh, I really do enjoy Unbreakable. I think coming off of The Sixth Sense, which even if uh, time has not necessarily been the best friend of The Sixth Sense, as I think people's opinion has slightly wavered over the last two decades, um, I still enjoy it, and I think it's a... a interesting and well put together film that has diminishing returns when you watch it again. Uh, that being said, um, coming off of that, his, you know, first introduction into that was the birth of, uh, Samuel Jackson's character and finding out that all of these, he has all these broken bones when he's, there's a baby being born and he's got, you know, numerous broken bones when he's, five minutes old um that sets the tone for the rest of the film in my opinion is it's a very good opening scene and a good segue into what you would see (coughs) for the rest of the film uh that being said unbreakable does for me have some lulls throughout it that i think are a little Boring. I was going to say, I don't know if boring is the right word, but a little mundane for the kind of film it was wanting to be. And also, too, uh, that's a film that's definitely a product of its time because there is no way that a film like that would have been made in the way it's made in this no, time period. No, And, yeah, no, I'm with you there. After the explosion of Marvel and other superhero properties no. in the you know late 2000s to early 2010s, uh, we would we would just not see something like this. A lot of that fat would have been trimmed. Yeah, and I think a lot more time would have been spent uh, in the finale, which I think would absolutely be a detriment to it because the finale, uh, or at least the the final major 
uh, showdown, first of all, would have been against a much larger boss opponent that you would have been force-fed small details about throughout the rest of the film. And instead, it's this very contained eight-minute single story of him just finding this guy who's kidnapped these children um, and basically just choking him to death. Well, and beyond that, too, since after, you know, on the heels of The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable was famous because people were expecting a twist. And there was a twist. It may not have been the twist that people would want or something like that, uh, but the absence of a... Uh, shall we say, not necessarily the absence of a game changer because there technically is one, but the fact that it was much more manufactured than the audience previously believed and that the character of Mr. Glass had essentially created what we saw is anticlimactic in a good way. It's probably, I mean... I don't want to say it's better because the <clears throat> twist in the sixth sense, if you know it's coming, you'll never be able to yeah. truly you can't watch that movie for the first time ever. No. Uh however, the twist in this in Unbreakable probably is a little bit of a better payoff for the actual film. Where I think the shock value in the sixth <clears throat> sense is probably way greater. But here it's just like Oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense. For me, the twist in Unbreakable is, and I know this is like... Not which the, is, for anybody who hasn't yeah. seen it in a long time, is just Elijah Price, which is Samuel Jackson character. Mr. Glass, please. Mr. Gl- okay. <laughs> oh, call me Mr. Glass! Uh, his they char- call him Glass. Oh my god. Nice reference. Oh, that's a movie that we'll never talk about probably on this <laughs> podcast. Well, we won't say the name. <laughs> well... That's a different kind of show, I think. Yeah. Uh, he basically takes off at one of his gloves and shakes hands with Bruce Willis, which now he knows he has the ability to see into these characters' lives and see all of their <clears throat> good or bad things that they've done. And basically you find out that for better, I mean, it was probably a better description, but Elijah Price is basically a terrorist. Yeah. And he set out to create these beings, so to speak. And well, to to, well, to to find them and have them reach their true potential. Right. Yes. Basically, he didn't care if they weren't out there, but he would be okay with doing what he did just to see if right. <laughs> uh, that would happen. But for me, that's kind of a bigger mindfuck in the long run than something like... You know, they were dead the whole time because of the fact that that kind of a twist is just slightly more just kind of unheard of. Because when you watch these kind of superhero movies, especially nowadays when we actually have an abundance of them, mm-hmm. we're not usually – you usually just don't fuck with the origin. You know, the origin is always straightforward and it's always clear cut and it's always presented to the audience as a starting point. And beyond that, you can play with the superhero and you can test them and you can whatever. But like that is almost always like copyrighted ownership. It's like a sacred. Yeah, it is property of the hero. And so for 
this presumably dorky, you know, whatever, to have not only such malicious and evil uh, uh, methods, but to have essentially created and made that choice for these people like Bruce Willis, uh, who thought that they were already losing ground on having control on their life, but at least was maintaining some semblance of control, mm. uh, for that to be pulled out from under the character, it, it I think, has the same effect on the audience, which is that uh, the superhero stories that you are being sold are basically made on <laughs> the blood of others. Yeah. Like, it's just kind of a dark and just wonderful twist. Anyway, I agree. I think it's a really well put together twist, especially coming off of the sixth sense where everyone was expecting him to do a twist to have a pretty, I would say large twist in the film and save it for like the, like it is in the like last like minute and a half. That yeah. You find that out. Like it is at the very end of the day. No of the that film. is like an exit stage left twist. He's mm-hmm. literally still trying to get the twist out yeah. as Bruce Wallace is He's, like or Wallace. Was, Bruce Willis is basically <laughs> Bruce Wallace. And Bruce Wallace. And uh, Bruce Wallace. Um, as Bruce Willis is basically like the movie's over, bud. Yep. I can't fuck with this. They used to call me Mr. Glass. <laughs> it's so, it's so obnoxious. So, uh, but, split or what were you going to say? I was just, I was going yes. to go there. Go ahead. No, I was going to oh. say. Yeah, no, split. I, I, uh, <clears throat> as, as someone who went into, I think one of the most important things about going to see split and why I liked it so much is. I've never been an M. Night Shyamalan apologist, and I've never been a huge fan of his, but I've always wanted him to turn his career around in some way, because... There's no one else like him. Well, he would tell you that. I mean, in my opinion. Generally true. Good and bad. Yeah. Um, But that being said, the mystique around him fizzled out probably at the Lady in the Water. And, it drowned. Yeah. I mean, he still had a, like, he still had people going to the theater for the village. But after The Lady in the Water came out, <clears throat> everyone jumped off that bandwagon. Wait, did The Lady in the Water... That was before The Happening. No, no, I was going to say, was that before The Village? It was not. Okay. Because I was going to say, The Village was the last thing I remember. The, the Village was like, the people last... People still going to see, mm-hmm. people still talking about the ending. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, I don't even know people who went and saw Lady of the Water. No. Yeah. No, I've seen about 30 minutes of it uh, over a few different I've always times. wanted to watch it because it looks so bad. Yeah. Yeah. You know I would. See, it's one of those things where there's nothing good coming from it. Like, there's no, oh, boy, this is bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. It is just terrible. But see, the thing is, I can always watch bad genre films. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't sit through a bad sports film or a bad superhero film, you know. Yeah. But, like, horror, uh, for the most part, the worst it is, uh, I'm still okay with it. Like, I can mm. I can get to the credits and then never have to watch it again. All right. Well, maybe we'll sit down and try to stomach through it one day. Hell yeah. But anyways, after that, every and, and the only reason that anybody watched The Happening is because of how bad everybody said it was yeah and they were right <laughs> yeah um and then after that i mean he went four films and no one was interested um and even though i never saw it it seemed like there was like a hint of a possible resurgence with his film before split called the, the visit? visit that was actually 
even more of an hint from the circles that I was talking to, most people thought that like that was like a decent film on par with everything he had made prior to his shit run. Um, so I think that's the only reason why Split was even able to happen. Probably. Yeah. But Split was like actually a somewhat return to form in my opinion. Yeah. And even if it does not carry the same weight that his original three films, I mean, you can throw The Village in there too, but uh, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs were like films that people went to go see, like regular people, not like you and me. Yeah. Um, So. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean, you people? But but this this film split was... um, Everything from the opening credits, which I thought were awesome, uh, all the way through the entirety of the film, I just, I just really thought it was a well put together story. I was, and I, I really do think that it would not have been as good if they did not have James McAvoy playing that character. Oh, absolutely! I think he delivered. Mister Filth is just real. He's got, he's got, he's got some teeth to him. No, I mean, he is a good actor, yeah. and he's great in this. Yep. Um, I gotta say, funny story, watching Split in the theater, that was one of the hardest I've ever had to not spoil something for you, because mm. you didn't know about the Unbreakable thing, right? I did not. Right. And I just remember reading about it the day before, going, oh, wow, that thing that Alex, I think, would be into is going to actually happen or whatever. And mm. I remember... Before we saw it, I wanted to know how much you knew, but I thought even asking certain leading questions was going to ruin it. So mm. I just had to like be quiet for the entire night, and so that's hard for me. If you've ever met me, yeah, I can see that. But anyway, it was very fun that uh, you got to uh, experience, especially that. because Tucson had no idea what that was because he hadn't seen Unbreakable. So we were like explaining it to him, and I just thought. For whatever reason, I took it for granted that Unbreakable would be a film that Tucson has seen because it's right up. Seems right up his alley. Comic right, books so. and horror. And, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, I've already hit on a little bit of, of what I really liked about this film. And, and I think that that's all it really needs because this isn't like a masterpiece, fabulous film, even though I give it a, a really solid rating. Um, this is a film I would watch any day of the week. And I think it was a very Even well Sunday. Put- Okay. I just wanted to challenge that, yes. that phrase. Maybe not this particular Sunday, but some Well, Sunday. you just said any day of the week. So if we're going to lie on this podcast, then I guess we're going to go full lying. You said I'm a full, full lie. Full lying. Did you say full lion? Full, full lion. Full lion. <laughs> Roar. Ooh, good movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I don't have too much else to add to to the split film, but I will say um those two films are great separated by themselves. Yeah. And I think that that's the way they probably should have stayed because um the it's not even really a post-credit scene because yeah, they show right. the title of the film and then they split to the split. Haha. <laughs> then they um <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> then they go right back into a diner uh, where Bruce Willis is. And basically, he's him being there is just, that's it. I was going to say, like, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I like how they don't show him at first. Like, they're just people in a diner watching the news mm-hmm. of the split beasts. <laughs> who's, 
That's who I referred to as the horde, which I don't, I don't know how that was a thing, but that's okay. And, um, but I just remember when I watched that credits scene or whatever, like, (laughs) I I guess I should have thought about Toussaint because the moment Bruce Willis then showed his face, I'm like, this is hilarious to anyone without even a passing familiarity to Unbreakable because without that, this genuinely looks like the twist is Bruce Willis showed up for a scene. Like, <laughs> there is nothing exciting about it whatsoever outside of the context of yeah. what that means in the cinema world. Mm-hmm. But, like, on paper, it is literally just like, Bruce Willis, dun-dun-dun, and it's just... Oh, David, dun-dun-dun. Yeah. yeah. So, hey, that's his name. That's right. Son of a bitch. Yeah. So. It's high roll. <laughs> Do you have anything else to the thing No, about? I think... This is the moment when we move on. Yes. So it's time to bridge that gap. So two things I will say before we get into this. Okay. One, I was excited for this film and it had nothing to do with the actual film itself. (laughs) Excited for two reasons. One, this was technically the first ever co-production between Disney and Universal, which is really bizarre. But that is actually because one had the rights to one and one have the rights to the other. Interesting. Yeah, which is really, really weird. Oh. Um, that this is this is the one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the second part of it is that I was fascinated by the idea that there was a film being made that was a sequel to two very separate films and not a true continuation of one solid universe. Yeah. Because we don't we don't really see anything like that. Like yeah. I don't want to say this is unprecedented but at the same time, in terms of it's modern, a... popular cinema, like this is very much unusual to have a film that is a connection between two very separate films. It's unprecedented by blunt force trauma. It, it is It is certainly, you're right in that it's not done. I can't think of when it's been done, so therefore it's rare at the very least mm-hmm. um but yeah when most trilogies are straightforward and they are like a they're a straight line it goes this and that and i'm talking even the most unique trilogies like richard linklater's before trilogy mm-hmm. where he decided he wasn't like he made that first movie and he had no plans to make another movie then 10 years later he got that itch to check in with those characters with the same actors and where those characters would be 10 years later so then he had a duology on his hand and genuinely i believe him like he had no plans to make a third one because he he i i think it's pretty safe to say he strikes me and i would think the cinephile world at large that he was not one to try to capture lightning in a bottle you know more than once because, mm. you know he moves on whatever but then he made that third and maybe final <laughs> film and all three films are fantastic, but it's still straightforward even as in its uniqueness. Mm-hmm. But here, instead of a straight line, we basically have a V we have this one movie trying to loom over the two movies that came before, but not really <laughs> trying to, but not the, succeeding. The, the really, this is a unbreakable sequel 19 years later. Correct. When the With characters... special guest star. Yeah, special guest star <laughs> Kevin Wendell Crumb. Yes. Uh, and 
even though I do think that James McAvoy did a very fine job and was very similar to the original film, um, his storyline is kind of inconsequential in this film. Absolutely. He's only there, apparently, to be an actual force of chaos because the other two won't do that. Right. <laughs> Even though the story's between them. So it kind of makes no sense that... M. Night created a trilogy that leads to a showdown between two characters who are so limp-dicked against each other that they need a separate, wholly inconsequential character to just shake them up to begin with. Like, it's, you know. Yeah. Uh, I will say the one connection in Split to this that actually works really well is the train that... uh, uh, James McAvoy's character leaves the flowers by, which uh, I was patting myself on the back because I read that pretty much from a mile away, that that yeah. was going to be the same train that his father left on, was actually the train that he died on um, from the uh, explosion that happens that we that David Dunn discovers his powers from. Um, so that is obviously the biggest connection probably between the three characters. But boy, howdy, does that film feel like it just was never going to be anything like, like, there's no way that this film, I don't think that M. Night Shyamalan was, let's put it this way, I don't don't think there's any way he was planning to make this film all along and had this tight... Well, ask him, he would say otherwise, because someone unearthed an interview from Beck and Unbreakable saying, I really hope it becomes a trilogy... Now, whether he had this exact end game, uh, I could see... I certainly hope not. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I I agree with that. Um, uh, I'm with you. And I was just going to say, before I pass it off to yeah. you, really, to, to talk about, you know, kind of just the first pass on this film, I actually don't hate Glass. I think Glass is a extremely unique film that cannot reach what it is grasping for. Um, And instead of just embracing the fact that it cannot and having different parts of its storyline, it just kind of just is there. And um, I still really do appreciate the effort because I think there is a lot going on in this film and I think there's a lot that was enjoyable with the story arc between the characters that being said um the way this film ends and the last 30 minutes of this film are pure dog shit (laughs) and i was on board for this film to end up being right in line with the first two probably about you know an hour and 15 minutes in and it went a different way and uh it it sucks because this film retroactively may have made the previous two efforts worse. I would agree. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to actually take what you just said and say that I also think that this is a genuinely unique film that does uh, reach to uh, not as far as its grasp. Uh, And yet, that's maybe why I hated it. (laughs) It squandered something that is genuinely exciting, and it squandered it with such 
a horrible, <laughs> a horrible concept, and just uh, horribly executed that concept in, in and of itself. I'm, I kind of said this for a film that I hate, and I do hate it. I will also say that I enjoyed the first hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I did not mind the basic conceit for the for the for the duration of the most of the running time which is that they're all three locked up and they all kind of uh sarah paulson's character kind of bounces back between all three of them to get this kind of psych eval and she's sitting there with basically a blowtorch just waiting to (laughs) yeah um and i was okay with that i didn't think it was amazing but i was like okay you know we are getting to third base here um you know whatever and it's it's done something similar that a lot of films do, at least for me, uh, which is something. This is an example I've been using recently, but the Jeffrey Wright film Hold the Dark, where I made it an hour in, and I was like, I'm not loving this, but yeah. this film could still win me over. <laughs> exactly, and it went the other way. <laughs> yes, yeah. and here's the thing: the problem with the ending of Glass. Well, there's many problems. <laughs> One problem with the ending of Glass is that that is an ending, and this is why I believe this was his end game all along. Mm. That last 30 minutes feels like it was written in 1999. Because that last 30 minutes makes no sense in well, 2019. The I will say this. Um, the idea of this guy who's been locked up for the last 20 years, having this knowledge of every single piece of media and being able to yeah. uh, marionette yeah. it exactly yep. to his fucking will. Yes. Uh, and also to, um, boy, it's been a bad year for this, by the way, because um, two films that we've seen that are, uh, I know they're on the bottom of your list and they're on the bottom of mine so far, yes. which is glass and the Matthew McConaughey uh, and Hathaway film yeah. serenity. I love that they're angry, too, that they didn't get more publicity for that. I'm like, you don't want that. <laughs> no, I was going to say. <laughs> right now, you're getting the best publicity. People are going out of their way to go see your movie because of how bad and crazy they heard it was. Yeah. Whereas I was not going to probably see it in theaters had I not read some of those articles. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, the both of those films have a very poor understanding of how uh, – computer coding works <laughs> yeah no just absolutely they have this weird outdated uh state of mind when it comes to the very things that they are contingent on mm-hmm. uh mr glass and sarah paulson to an, another degree too talked extensively about comic books in fact it's really weird like i get mr glass even after all these years why he would do that but why would Sarah Paulson's character continue to say, like in a comic book. It's 2019. I feel like superheroes exist in and of itself outside of comic books. You know what I mean? Like we... this film. This film. First of all, this film shows multiple visits to the comic book store, a yes. large comic book store, which, by the way, uh, is half full of pop funkos, which is actually probably about right. Um, but at the same time, yeah. uh, a a very poor understanding of of comic books just in general which is yes. weird because this is from a person who's 
trying to champion them, and it's, it's really yes. weird. Yes, it, <laughs> it makes no sense, because Sarah Paulson's character, who is, and I know, obviously, we find out she has an, a different motive and a different uh, career <laughs> than she was presenting, so Buying out whole restaurants for a meeting. <laughs> yeah, well, they weren't buying out the restaurant, because oh, there right. was that one random guy who was just chilling, and they were all waiting until he was done with his meal. I'd watch a movie on that. I'd watch a movie just on that, on somebody um, figuring out that this is weird that no one has gotten up and left. So here's the thing. Still here. That <laughs> reveal is actually not a bad reveal in theory because mm-hmm. I am all for any movie or piece of media that will in one millisecond shatter the reality of what you're watching with no explanation at first sight. So people literally in fact there's a great twilight zone episode where an actor goes back in time and you think that's going to be the big twist and whatnot Mm -hmm. but it turns out he didn't go back in time and the bigger twist is that after he uh, walks through a room and goes to a party and relives one of his moments that when he walks out of that room everybody in that bar stops and freezes because they're actually actors that were just performing a scene and that is similar to not Obviously, the speaking plot. Of, speaking of Twilight Zone, yes, you uh, looking forward to the Jordan Peele Twilight oh, yeah. Zone? Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. That was I thought that was the best commercial from the Super Bowl. Yeah, I haven't obviously watched that many, but I watched that one, and yeah. I very much enjoyed it. I think it fit right in with where where <clears throat> it was presented, and yeah. I think it I, it was it was well done, and uh, the the idea of Jordan Peele being that person now is uh, is something. You know, it's, when I heard Jordan Peele was going to be the the creator of this new revival, mm-hmm. I was super excited because I was like, oh man, he's been doing great things with, obviously, Get Out and possibly with us, which looks fantastic to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm like, he is actually the perfect choice because Get Out was such a socially conscious horror idea that, you know, that's what the Twilight Zone was. Not only that, but he comes from a background of sketch comedy, which means he is ingrained to writing ideas and premises and just milking them. And in the moment, there's no more milk just getting out of that. And so that's what the Twilight Zone is. And I didn't even realize that I also am going to fucking love him as the host because I didn't know if he was going to be like a good Rod Serling equivalent, but that uh, commercial completely won me over. I agree. I think it's it's a tall order because I don't think there is anyone who could live up to that. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see exactly what that is yeah. in this series. But yeah. What I'm excited about, and this is what every revival has done in the past, but I think it's the right way to go, is that they're doing remakes of classic episodes and original. So it's like... If one doesn't work, hopefully the other one will, you know. So I'm I'm all for that. And I will say as a TV nerd, the only complaint I would have about that commercial is the glitching mm-hmm. of the, you know, presentation mm-hmm. leading into the Twilight Zone. Hmm. It's a bit more Outer Limits than it is Twilight Zone, but that's just me. That's just me. Anyway. <laughs> Probably a fair assessment for somebody <laughs> like me who is not... A uh, one of I, those people. <laughs> I watched that commercial. That was the first thing I thought, and I was like, "God damn it, I'm a nerd." Yeah, because I was just like, "Well, technically speaking, the outer limits uh, opening narration would tell you not to adjust the dial or the channel, and that the TV was not broken." Now, Itchy successfully struck Scratchy's <laughs> rib at the same time, but yet produced a different sound. Uh, I hope someone got fired for that. <laughs> I hope someone was fired for that blunder. 
<laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, um, back to glass. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately. Yes. Uh, here's the thing. I want to dissect a few random notes. Okay. One thing. So, Mr. Glass, the big twist of this movie is that, and I'm saying this like as a not one little thing, but basically that Mr. Glass had orchestrated what you're seeing in Glass, which is that he wanted to get locked up with these two people, which in my opinion makes no sense as to how he would affect anything after he was locked up himself. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> um, but he wanted all this to converge, all three of them, so that way he could play out this ridiculously convoluted but completely manipulated, uh, isolated incident in which all three of them would die uh, fighting each other. But, but, be, but be all three of them be killed by... Uh, the whatever police force that Sarah Paulson's group True. has. But yeah, um, but that it would all happen at the same time, even before they got to whatever they were going to pretend to go to, at least. And that it would be captured by video cameras and the world could actually believe in superheroes and all that. Okay. Yeah. So here's the thing. What is it about this world that would not believe in superheroes if... Like, what was it about this plan that needed to happen for him to achieve that end goal? There's really nothing. So it seems like most people are behind the idea of there being these superior, supreme beings. Yeah, only Sarah Paulson, who we find out is really just an antagonist in disguise who is trying to put them down. Mm-hmm. So technically, her veneer is fake, and she also believes in superheroes because she knows better. She just wants to eliminate them so that nobody... But everybody I mean, else in this movie is pretty much like, yeah, superheroes exist. But the weird part about it is that she's playing, and it's funny because it's Samuel L. Jackson, but she's playing a very similar character, that you don't find out till the very end, um, to a really random movie uh, that Samuel L. Jackson was in with Hayden Christensen called Jumper, ah, okay. uh, where... There in there is a legion of people whose entire life goal is to kill jumpers because they don't want them existing, and they believe that only God should have the power of being in every in every place any place he wants to at once. It's well, a very I agree, uh, very silly, not good movie, which obviously is led by Hayden Christensen, so it landed right there in the right place but at the same time i mean i feel like the ending part of it i was expecting it to be better and instead we got a very finish which i guess you could say that's what we're going for okay but then uh you need to have this like fantastic denouement where this is just digging itself even deeper and the entire thematic weight of the last 30 minutes, in my opinion, is M. Night Shyamalan begging the audience to take comic books seriously. Like, that is kind of what he's hanging his hat on. And once again, that is a screenwriter picking a bone with something very 1990s-esque. Because, yes, Joel Schumacher is still around, and he is unfortunately... Solely the good name of Mr. Batman, <laughs> you know, his alias, Mr. Batman, Mr. Bruce Wayne. Um, Mr. Batman. 
<laughs> but that is, you know, like I could see back then, like, oh shit, people were, you know, really starting to possibly go toward the light, but, you know, now we're getting into whatever. I mean, I'm not saying I would still even buy it, but I would, like, I understand that as a stupid reaction to those times. Mm-hmm. But we're in 2019, and we, and he is screaming this message at an audience who has watched, or not watched, but who has existed alongside 10 seasons of the Big Bang Theory. Like, <laughs> we are living in the age of comic books and how it is cool to be yourself and watch superhero movies. They are now the number one, pretty much, movies in the entire world. And so, for all of that to be the dramatic heft of the movie, it's just... I don't care if this was your endgame all along. You should know that it doesn't play anymore. And hmm. you could have maybe done something slightly better dramatically. Like, if you really wanted to make a big twist and really wanted to uh, tie these two movies together. And really, I said this to you in the parking lot, but I still don't to this day. don't understand why the twist wasn't that David Dunn and uh, Kevin, or the Horde, are actually suffering from mental illness. And we would have seen scenes recreated by M. Night Shyamalan, which in 2019 you could do, and you could de-age Bruce Willis. Like, you could do, like, that's the kind of thing you could do right now Mm -hmm. and show uh, how everything in their mind, because nothing is too out there, and that's why I thought they kept bringing that point up, which is, like, you're not a superhero, you just have better strength than most people, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that would have retroactively made both movies sadder in a good way and more powerful I think but no it, it was went, it went a different way it did and for him to go in that direction and still pepper this movie with lines like Mr. Glass saying oh haven't you been paying attention this is an origin story uh, he didn't shout it like that but he may as well have kind of did. Um, and I'm genuinely confused as to if M. Night Shyamalan knows what an origin story is because and I don't mean that like this is literally not an origin story I mean like this is not an origin story like that for you to uh, it, it, this is <laughs> I, I, I just don't yeah. understand it would have made sense too because this film does actually focus a lot uh, around the main people in both of their and all three of their lives, as we see the trio of them uh, standing together. Actually, that was a part of uh, the film that I really did enjoy uh, was the connection uh, early on in the film where we see the triangle um, of where they are. David Dunn and his son are like trying to track down the horde in the beginning. Yep. And then the three, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's character. And uh, uh, Mr. Glass's mother. Yes. Yeah. And um, I'm with you in that. that I they're like making those. the exact same shape in there. Yeah. I mean, those are little things that I picked up on in the first viewing that I don't know if everybody would else see, but it was clear to me. And at the I same time, it, yeah. I, thought it was, I thought it was wonderful. Like, it was yeah. a good comparison. But unfortunately, we get the ending of this film which is, again, uh, having a very poor understanding of how technology works now, where two hours after they've set up this viral video, at the same moment, everybody's seen it for the first time. And since they're seeing uh, a guy bend a pipe in half and another guy push over a car, it's, like, immediate that superheroes are real. Yep. (laughs) Done. And it's not like we watch bullshit YouTube videos where stupid things happen and then we're like, was that even real? It's not. 
I'm just saying. And like th- that. That's the that's the that's the reality of it, though, is that it is so that the idea of what M Night Shyamalan is trying to say in that finale is laughable to me. It is, <laughs> and I liked. I'm with you in the sense that I like the idea of those three together, kind of bonding. And actually, I thought that was going to be a direction possibly they were going to take it, where not so much that maybe they were going to get powers, but maybe they were going to somehow carry on a certain part of the legacy of the of their counterpart and that denouement scene renders all three of those characters inconsequential mm-hmm. i mean they did not need to play in that finale they meet up in the bus station because for whatever reason i don't know <laughs> but um that like literally lost all credibility of the goodwill that i had bestowed upon David and his son running around playing vigilante, and mm-hmm. Kevin and uh, Anya Taylor uh, Joy's character connecting, even if I thought that was slightly <laughs> offensive in this portrayal, and Mr. Glass and his mother, of course, which actually harkens back to, I mean, all three harken back to their respective films, but I feel like that relationship was the most fascinating because that was like, he is who he is uh, in spite of his mother, which I always find interesting. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I definitely enjoyed about this final film of the trilogy uh, was I actually thought Anya Taylor-Joy and uh, James McAvoy's relationship I actually liked it a lot actually I can't I'm saying that so many I'm saying actually like four times there but um, and I understand your point of view on it because I don't necessarily think it's necessarily good but it just worked for me just because I liked Anya Taylor-Joy and James McAvoy's backstory so much in the original film. Um, I think the idea that um, she is used basically to render him powerless and then he's murdered uh, is, I thought, pretty fantastic and actually very interesting in terms of the one thing that I would say about this film. And because no matter what, uh, M. Night Shyamalan wants to say about this being a comic book and superhero story. This is 100% a story on like depression and family issues and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, the idea of family members being twisted to the will of both the person who is in treatment and the people who are treating them is very interesting to me because that I feel like that's just the reality of what it is, is that you are stuck in this weird in between place where you are trying to always be on their side, but then at the same time, you're also trying to help somebody. And it's just a, it's just a very weird space for anybody to have to be in um, and I thought that it you know for what this film was doing and for all of the faults that it had it actually played that out pretty well for me so I'll say this I like mm-hmm. both of those actors I like mm-hmm. uh, James McAvoy's performance and I love Andy Tyler Joy so I enjoyed them scene by scene mm-hmm. acting out their relationship Story arc, whatever yeah. um, but I still think as written, uh, Andy Taylor-Joy's character gets too much emotional validation out of the relationship between him and her. Uh, there's a little too much uh, 
almost, and I, I hate to say this, but there's a little too much empathy given from her to him as, like, both victims of abuse, which is not to say that they are not, and not to say that neither one of them may uh, deserve sympathy in the right context, mm-hmm. but the idea that, to me, however unintentional, this movie presents a relationship in which Anya Taylor-Joy basically has to put aside her abuse to allow a man to get over his <laughs> abuse, even though he inflicted her abuse onto her, uh, and yet presented as a connection of wounded animals, mm-hmm. just completely missed the fucking point for me, and okay. just kind of ticked me off. Okay. But... I like their performances. Okay. Uh, I liked. That's about it, actually. Yeah. So that's yeah. So all that being said, um, this was a very interesting collection of films for me, um, and I think for the most part, I will look back positively on this as a trilogy, even though I feel like the ending of it really set a bad tone for the rest of the films still i feel like you know the first five hours and 20 minutes of the six and a half hours of these three films is actually pretty good um so overall i give uh, unbreakable three and a half out of five i give split four out of five and i give glass uh three out of five for now even though I was a little bit lower to start Ooh, off with, but a positive net worth right there. Yep. I, I overall have to say, I feel like I actually enjoyed glass. Um, even though the last half hour sucked. And I think the, the reason why it pushes its way into a positive rating for me is just because I did enjoy the storyline between the characters from split in this film. Um, and I think, that's what sucks about it is that and that's where M. Night Shyamalan missed the mark here big time is that that felt good to me and everything involving David Dunn and Elijah Price uh, felt like it had no business being here and it was just here to move along this wacky story that he can claim he's been planning for 20 years but felt like he wrote it on a cocktail napkin so overall uh, I give uh, a positive, positive. I don't want to say review, but I give yeah. a a positive stamp to this entirety of a collection of films. It's really not a trilogy, but it is uh, definitely something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Going down the line, I as of right now, I would give Unbreakable four. Last time I watched it, gave it four and a half, but okay. I got to admit, until I rewatch it, uh, it just got knocked down a little bit of a peg because of this grand scheme by <laughs> courtesy of one M. Gloss. Um, I'd give Split a two and a half out of five because I really didn't mind it, but uh, I felt like if you would have just excised Unbreakable altogether and all of its Easter eggs or stingers or just... Uh, over overarching shadow, it could have been a fun horror movie that it didn't end up being for me. Mm-hmm. And I would give Glass a one 
star out of five, just barely missing the half star threshold. Uh, because I, I still think M. Night Shyamalan is a great filmmaker. He's just a horrible storyteller. Mm. And I feel like that's what happened here. And I also... It's weird to talk about these movies because while I think only one movie is successful, truly out of the trilogy, I would say that I would give the entire trio a stamp of uh, approval in the sense that every cinephile should watch all three and see this very weird and unique experiment that for me failed, but (laughs) no less got made and Mm -hmm. with a budget and it's crazy. But um, because Glass ended with M. Night Shyamalan saying, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, I just am never going to look at these films the same way again, which is a shame. But mm. So yeah, overall, it's an indelible mark in the Hollywood landscape in the last 20 years, but so are stains. <laughs> <laughs> well put, sir. Uh, if you out there have any thoughts on any of these particular films, Unbreakable, Split, or Glass, or want to talk about them as a whole, uh, feel free to get a hold of us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. So coming up on our next episode, uh, a film that I know Toussaint is definitely interested in, and a film that I randomly am interested in, and I think it'll be fun because Toussaint has a lot more of a background on this particular story than I do, or I do believe you do. Yeah, I was going to say. Yep. Um, but that being said, this is a very interesting film put together, not necessarily like Glass, um, but uh, the film Alita Battle Angel uh, is interesting because of the fact that it is being produced by James Cameron, directed by Robert Rodriguez, uh, and is really going, I don't want to say all in, but in on this idea of full-on computer-generated people, um, which we've we've seen some of, but in terms of like an entire main character, his has not really broke the barrier just yet. So, interested in that. Also interested in the fact that this film has two of the better supporting actors right now working, which are Christoph Waltz and Mahershala Ali. And I'm I'm interested to see what it is, and I don't necessarily know if it's going to be good or bad, but I, I think it'll be fun for us to talk about because I think all three of us have very different degrees of what we think about um, Alita Battle Angel. No, I was, gonna, I was oh. just going to say, just in general, anime and, and Alita Battle Angel. Yeah. I'm smiling because I you were talking about how this movie is like unique in its computer-generated effects. Uh-huh. Uh, specifically, you used the phrase computer-generated people. Uh-huh. So because that made me think of like a... <laughs> Like a scene, like twenty years from now, of like a little boy 
going through a museum and like we don't quite see what the exhibits are yet but like he puts up his like face up against the glass and squishes it up there and goes mom look it's the young jeff bridges they used in trot legacy and look it's the young robert downey jr from civil war and like just like a boy bouncing from each exhibit of all the bad cgi likenesses anyway there have been some <laughs> there have been I just anyway that that stupid uh, uh, fantasy I just had made me laugh. So That's, I'm glad you shared it with the team. I That's feel good. like you know that was worth sharing. I think so too. <laughs> uh, but it'll be a fun little collection of uh, opinions. I think on that episode, it's the facelift that gave Joseph Gordon Levitt to look like Bruce Willis <laughs> and Looper. Yeah, anyway. Looper. Oh, that's good. So that's what's coming up on our next episode here on Film Tanks. So from Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman, as always, thank you very much for listening to us here at Film Tank, and we'll be catching up with you next time.